Anecdotal. A podcast of stories not necessarily true or reliable, but based on personal accounts rather than facts or research. So welcome to the inaugural season of Anecdotal, a podcast delivered by the Department of Arts and Entertainment Technologies in conjunction with the Liberal Arts ITS. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Today we have Kathleen K.M. Parks with us. She uh, was also here a few weeks ago when uh, we looked at art and aesthetics in gaming, and I think you were the master of Ori and uh, the Blind Forest. And really, really wonderful to have you back and to hear your story, your anecdote. How are you? I'm good. I'm K.M. Uh, my story today is about mental health, which is really important. And the ending lesson, and I'm going to spoil it right here, is people need people. And that little phrase right there kind of saved my life, actually. Um, I, when I was, the story begins when I was around between 13 and 17 months. Where, if you've ever met a baby, babies are fearless. They'll look you right in the eyes. And it's very odd if a baby doesn't. And when I was between 13 and 17 months, my parents realized I wouldn't look anyone in the eye. And from then on there, I would go see doctors and they would say, she's a little different. Um, eventually, it took till I was 13 to get diagnosed with um, high-functioning autism. By that point, Asperger's syndrome had been removed from the official uh, diagnosis book, the DSM, I believe. Mm-hmm. And... But if Asperger's had been around, that was what I would have been diagnosed with. And as I got older, more and more quirks kind of popped up. My parents knew when I was really young, I did not. Um, that's kind of hard to learn about when you're you know, little. But um, I would have, I wouldn't really get along with people. I had a hard time making friends um, at like birthday parties. I wouldn't want to do what everyone else was doing. I'd go off on my own. Or during soccer games, I go play with flowers instead of playing in the soccer game. I was my very first diagnosis was sensory integration disorder. I have no clue if that's still a thing, but I remember my parents would have to like put me on my uh, put me on their bed, and they'd get a brush and they'd have to brush my hands and my feet because the way it works is I have trouble adjusting to textures, and so I I wasn't actually able to wear jeans until like seventh grade. I wore pajama pants throughout my entire elementary school. Um, experience and that always set me apart from other people you know other people are wearing jeans to school and I'm wearing pajamas basically when I was I lived in Frisco when I was really young with my family well, when I was six we moved to Tyler Texas um, if y'all don't know where that is it's in East Texas pine country uh, rose capital of the world there's a lot of roses there and I had one year of sixth grade where I was different. I kind of knew that, but I didn't really pay attention. But I also had no social awareness. I was the weird kid in class. I would do stupid stuff. And I would also have a red cushion with like little bumps on it to keep me from fidgeting because I'd always fidget. And I was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, And I've since been on ADHD meds for my entire life because of that. And um, I was kind of a problem child, but also not. I wasn't like interrupting class, making fart sounds, but I did, you know, I was, I was a problematic kid. And then when I was seven in second grade, I got a clue and I realized I was different. 
I thought I was an alien. In fact, I would play on the playground as if I was an alien. I always had this really vivid imagination, and I would get these obsessions um, focusing intently on something. For a while, it was dinosaurs, um, and, uh, and after that, it was like big cats. I used to be able to repeat all of the scientific names for all 32 felines, um, and I would just focus on those things for months at a time, not pay attention in class. I'd read books about it, I'd write about it, and I'd miss out on a lot. And I realized I was different. I couldn't really make friends. I didn't really get people. And that depressed me. I was seven years old, and I got bad depression. When you're little, I, I can't even go back to that mindset, because, you know, you don't have a clue. You mm. don't know anything about space or clouds or or cells or dna and or or the brain and i didn't know that being different was normal that not no one's normal but i i had this idea that i didn't belong and that leached away at me until eventually what i would do is i would go into my closet and I would stuff pants under the door in an attempt to suffocate myself. Now, I was seven, seven years old. And I was, I didn't even know suicide was a thing. I didn't even know that was a word. I wouldn't know that till years later. But I had the intent to kill myself. Now, it probably wouldn't have worked. But I don't like to dwell on the fact that I was doing it. Mostly because that's really close to mortality before I hit double digits. And... That continued on for a while. Um, I would, I won't get into the details of what that was like, but it was emotional roller coasters, and I would always open the door because I wouldn't, you know, I'd have the intent, but I wouldn't go through with it. I have a question. Yes. Um, in these particular moments, and uh, I, I will uh, say that I have, uh, I can empathize. I had some issues with depression uh, when I was younger, but right out of high school, a period right out of high school. Uh, so we're kind of in terms of development uh, off maybe by about a decade or so. But I seem to recall this interesting uh, question of whether I was more depressed in the moment or more depressed in um, retrospect. This, when I, when I think back upon... Um, at the moment, what if I thought back about upon something that I just did, or some sort of manifestation uh, of the way I was feeling, and um, some sort of action that I took that was a result of that? Sometimes I felt, you know, worse uh, in retrospect than in the moment. Um, I was really little; I barely remember it, but uh, I do remember the feeling of I would be crying and you know, thinking I didn't like this, I didn't mm -hmm. enjoy, I, I don't really remember it. I mostly mm -hmm. blocked it out at this point. I remember bits and pieces of what it was like to open the door and have fresh air. I remember writing notes while in the closet. I remember my family never really knew about it until years later when I told them. I remember just a pervasive sense of, once I started thinking about it, that I was different, and how hard it was being mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. I just, I didn't want to be different from anyone else. Mm -hmm. But that was until I was eight. 
Mm -hmm. um, and my mom, we were driving, we went by her <coughs> mailbox. My mom got a book out and it had all, it's, uh, the name of the book was All Cats Have Asperger's Syndrome. And she said, here, this is for you. And I read this book and it's, it's adorable. It's cats and it talks about how they're, you know, how the, they use pictures of cats and they give words about how these cats are just a little bit different from everyone else. And it described me. It described my life. It described how I felt different from everyone else, how picky I was with eating, how I didn't like certain clothes and textures, how I was so obsessed about certain things, how I didn't get people. Because one of the big things about Asperger's is body language and vocal um, cues, I don't pick up on them. I have incredible trouble keeping eye contact. I try really hard. Uh, I have intense focused obsessions that I will spend forever on. I'm bad at paying attention in class. I'm bad with handling emotions. I go into tantrums sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that was in the book. And I realized, this is me. And that changed my life because no longer was I an alien. I was just someone who was a little bit different. I know some people, people would be like, oh no, I'm a freak. I have autism. But for me, it was, I'm not an alien. I'm human. And everyone's a little bit like this. Everyone is a little different. That opened my eyes, and it greatly improved my state. Uh, it didn't cure it, but it improved it. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, I found uh, a reason to keep going. Uh, I want to be a writer, um, and I had a story that I wanted to tell, um, but that's a different thing. And I made a promise to myself I wasn't ever going to do it again, um, try to kill myself. And that is maintained till today. I have never ever attempted again which uh but that does not mean that there aren't thoughts fast forward to high school and it's the veterans day assembly uh freshman year is i think veterans day is in november it might be i don't know or it wasn't memorial day it was it was a rally um a pep rally in the gym and there was a veteran speaker and there was this moment after he was speaking, and there was a slow clap. And the slow, cl slow clap echoed through this terrible acoustic gym. Gym with terrible acoustics. And there was something about the off, you know, the, the non-synced up um, clapping across the whole gym, echoing off the walls, that freaked me out so bad that I had a panic attack. Uh, the actual term, I think, is anxiety attack, but panic attack is what I used for years, and it's kind of what I'm accustomed to. But what happened was I kind of shut down. My state kind of regressed is what it's like. Um, I felt intense fear, panic. I freaked out. I reached out to stop my friend from clapping, and she kind of shook me off, and that freaked me out even more until eventually my other friends noticed and were able to get me help, and I was taken from the counselor's to um, taken by a counselor at the counselor's office, and that's where I stayed until my dad came and picked me up, and that was my first panic attack. It's really hard to describe what it's like, but it's it's like going back to a state of dependency where I don't have my full cognitive function, where I'm just desperately holding on, trying not to succumb to clouds in my head. I, I can't really describe it. Um, anyone who's experienced it, you know, it's like the same. It's hard to get through it, and it hurts. Not physically, but up here. It, it, it's demoralizing. It pulls away at how you feel. And that was reality for me for two and a half years.
I experienced them not a whole lot my freshman year, but come sophomore year, they would happen more and more frequently, once a month, once a week, twice a week. And it was so bad that I was miserable. I couldn't stay in class. Um, I, a lot of the times I would spend, you know, two days a week in the counselor's office trying to get over it and maybe hope to go back to class and, you know, before the end of the day, or if it was really bad, my family would come and pick me up and I would spend all my time blasting music through my headphones, probably giving me hearing damage to try and block out the world um, and regulate my thinking, shut out the racing thoughts drown out the emptiness and just focus on music and music and uh, a puzzle game that would usually help me focus and get out of my head and that was it, it, it tore and drained my life for me the quality of life went down and uh i pushed people away i was like i have autism i'm not meant to be social I was wired differently from other people. I'm bad at people, thus I must not be meant to know people. And I would just get worse and worse and worse. I pushed away my best friend. I wouldn't talk to my family. I wouldn't take the medications that would help me. Therapy, I was, I was belligerent towards it. I was just full on miserable. And then one day, you know, it's, it's another panic attack or I felt another one coming on. I went to the counselor's office, I sat outside until she got back, and I had an epiphany, just out of nowhere, that maybe I'm completely wrong about it. Maybe it's not that I don't need people, but I need people even more than I thought. Because humans are social creatures, like, by design, we need each other to not only survive, basically survive, but also to, you know, to thrive in life, to succeed, to, to do great things. There's a reason why we're so social and it's because we need each other. And I came to the conclusion, people need people. That lesson kind of changed the way I look at things. I changed my life. Now, when I said earlier that it saved my life, I don't mean physically. Well, kind of. Hmm. Uh, Your life is more than just your biological body. It's also your head. You, you, if enough goes on in your head and it gets sick enough, because that's what was happening. My, my, my head was sick. You're going to have a death of some kind. You're going to suffer uh, greatly until you're not who you were. Who you were as you were is not going to exist. You're not going to be able to feel happiness because you're just going to be in your head all the time. For me, and I think this applies, it's a life lesson, and I believe it applies to everyone. The best way to get better is to get out of your head and get help from Mm -hmm. people. People need people. And that life-saving advice is is it brought back quality to my life. I was able to be happy again. I was able to smile again. Not that I couldn't do both before, but it it was temporary. It wasn't lasting. You know, at the end of the day, I would be in bed and just thinking back on everything I'd done and suffering crippling anxiety as, you know, I tracked all the things that went wrong, all the things that didn't go my way, all the things that I did wrong. And I would always blame myself because there's always a small part of my head when I'm in a panic attack that's like fully aware and saying, you should be better than this. You should know better. You should be doing better. And I, you know, hated myself because I thought of myself as weak. And I'm going to be honest, I still do. 
When I have issues, I get upset at myself. I, I know better. I shouldn't, but I'm always apologetic whenever I have issues. I, I'll be very sorry that I'm having a problem when I really shouldn't be, but I can't help it because there's always a small part of me that's saying, hey, you should be doing better. But this whole people need people, I started reaching out to people and telling them how I, what was going on. Parents. God bless them. I love my parents. They have been with me from the very beginning, and there's not a whole lot they can do, you know, to be there, but just be there for your kid mm -hmm. when your kid is plagued by depression. And one of the best things that really helped me get through was teachers and faculty at my schools. My elementary school was fantastic. My, when I'm, my family moved back to Dallas. Um, we lived in Tyler up until when I was nine, and then we moved back to Dallas. And every single school that I went to, except middle school, middle school was a mess, mm -hmm. um, had amazing faculty, amazing teachers that knew how to handle kids like me. Counselors were great for helping me. And even now in college, I've been lucky to get good professors and people to help me help myself. And that all comes from me being willing to reach out and tell people, you know, I'm not having a good time. I'm having a really hard time as it stands. And teachers are great. Um, and I got the medications I needed. I got the therapy I needed. And I'm not afraid to talk about it because we all shouldn't be ashamed of having problems. And the depression is still there. I want to live. I want to be happy. I want to accomplish great things in my life. But that doesn't stop there from being a small part of my head that I maybe I'm stressed out and I'm having a bad day and I'm thinking things I don't want to think that I, I hesitate to say out loud because I don't want to, you know, give it ground to stand on. Or, or maybe I'm just having a day, a regular day where nothing goes wrong, nothing goes great. Just Or maybe even on great days, I'll think in my head something that I don't want. Um, sometimes I just feel exhausted and I don't want to get out of bed. So, and I have to force myself to, I have to stay out of my room sometimes where I'm like, if I go in there, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to stay in there and I'm going to stay in bed and I'll go to my friends and I'll be like, Hey, I'm not doing well. I need support and I'm able to rely on people. And what I ended up learning is people need people. And the best way to do that is to surround yourself with people in your life who can support you. You need to find, you need to communicate with people like your teachers or your boss if you're at work or with doctors and therapists. You need to communicate with them. You need to bring in every single person in your life who you can rely on to help you. And that can be hard. I know I was blessed in my life to have good teachers, good friends, good family, doctors and therapy at my you know disposal. Not everyone gets that. Some people don't. Some people don't have parents who understand. Some people don't have friends like that who are willing to put up with, you know, some very, very heavy, serious stuff. Some people don't have the money or want to go into doing therapy, which is great for everyone, even if you don't have a problem. Therapy is a good idea because it helps talking to a professional. Some people don't want to take medications um, in order, but, you know, sometimes you need them to function in life. I know I need mine to function. I hate that I need to take them, but... And sometimes you don't have that readily available, which is why you got to reach out and take the initiative. Because no one's going to help you if you don't ask for it. 
That's something you know yourself best. You know what you need best. And what you need is to be able to have the ability to get out there and get help. It, it, everything I just said, you know, is fine and dandy if you're not willing to do something about it. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to get up, go outside, call people to get the help you need, then no one's going to do it for you. Mm. You you have to take the initiative. You have to be proactive. And that can be hard and it can be scary, but it, no one else is going to do it for you. When I was in my 20s, I, uh, as I alluded to earlier, I suffered for, um, from uh, depression. And so I can understand um, nearly the entire gamut of your uh, feelings and your experiences. I, in, the, in my 20s, you talk about professors and teachers and being surrounded by a support network, that there's nothing more important than that. And I certainly felt blessed by having that. But I, I also found great wisdom in in authors. Uh, one of my favorite, Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you've read any Kurt Vonnegut. He was really like kind of counterculture popular in the 60s and 70s. But, and of course, it's a generational thing. My parents were into Vonnegut. Anyway, he he suffered from forms of, of, of mental illness, but he would write extensively using that as a, a vehicle. And he also, in a few books, just had these like really, really great kind of epiphanal phrases. And one I'll never, ever forget. And I think about it often, and I could be paraphrasing Vonnegut. He says, we're all here on this. We're all here together to help each other get through this thing, whatever the hell it is. And and so, and he was not a religious person, but he did understand humanism. He did understand the basic tenets of looking out for one another, listening to one another, and the listening as being as important, if not more important, than the talking part, right? And that, you know, it seems to me that today's culture is a bit of a contradiction, right? I mean, we're sitting here and we're talking with headphones and we're recording this and we're live with the class. And then, of course, this will ter- be, you know, turn into a piece of digital audio that will represent in some way some form of communication in the form of a podcast. And that we're living in a, a society uh, that is so interconnected, right, via social media, via uh, smartphones, via Wi-Fi and cellular. We have this connectivity to virtually anything and everything uh, that we need. And yet social scientists might um, point to now as this kind of interesting point where there is a lot of connectivity, but there is a lot of disconnect as well. You know, that the with every vehicle and, and method there is out there for connectivity and podcast is certainly uh, an example of that there are that many more if not more distractions so the sum total is more alienation more individual a kind of uh, feelings of not necessarily despair that would be kind of on the far side of of the spectrum of 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 experience but certainly isolation you know i'm i'm curious uh, about your thoughts on that we need to kind of wrap up within the next five minutes or so i in a sense agree but that is true um i think i don't have stats on me or anything but i do know that 
either we're getting better at recognizing depression and, uh, you know, mental illness, or we're in a day and age where disconnect from other people, you know, we're, we're behind this phone, uh, the screens of phones, mm-hmm. um, can, you know, take a toll in a sense. Now, I think it can go both ways. I think it can work in against people, but I also think it can help because I met my best friend online. Um, we've been friends for seven, eight years, mm-hmm. eight years, I think. Uh, we were kind of sketchy on when we met, which you'd think we would know because it's on the internet, but it's hard to figure out, pinpoint a day. And in fact, this past summer, I got to go see her. Um, she lives up in Spokane, Washington. And that friendship that we got online is you know, my greatest friend, uh, the strongest friendship I've ever had. But, you know, we're also disconnected from one another. She lives 1,800 miles away from me. Or is it 18,000? I think it might be 1,800. 1,800. Yeah. 1,800. Um, you know, several flights away. But, you know, the only way we're able to talk to each other is through texting or emails or something like that. She dropped Snapchat, so we lost our streak there. But um, <laughs> she, you know, there's, there's, there's also opportunity for great connection to people, but there's also, again, a distance. So I, I agree, but I think there's room for improvement. I mm-hmm. think it's not all bad. I think there's ways that if we can perfect the system, which there's no such thing as perfecting any system. Um, but if Yeah, we systems can, are inherently flawed yeah. by nature, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I name a single system that's perfect. I, I, it's not a thing. Well, I won't name Facebook. That is anything but perfect. Uh, True. Like, wh- one thing that, that's interesting about social media as it relates to connectivity, but it seems to me like one of the things that drives me nuts is, is knowing the disconnect in, t- in terms of time. In other words, so someone posts something, but we don't know how long it took the person to post, to edit to really think then post then oh my gosh i i misspelled a word or i should take that four letter word out of there i don't want to offend anybody then it's posted and then that you know it just seems as though communication though available to 2.1 billion people and i'm just talking about facebook Are specifically we two billion now i think so Two, two billion. Yeah. I thought, last I checked, we were like 1.7. 1.7. Uh, well, you can 1.7 minus one. I got off like about a month ago. Uh, but anyway, it just it's it feels artificial, and that artificiality goes against at least for me. Once I started to kind of, and and I also share um, your. Uh, obsessions. I have obsessions as well. And one of mine right now in this particular moment is thinking about the artificiality and the disconnect inherent in social media as it relates to this, uh, your notion of people need people, which is without a doubt the name of today's episode. It has to be called People Need People. And I do want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for being here and telling your story, it certainly uh, took courage to do so, and there's no doubt that many among your classmates uh, will benefit from your wisdom. Any final thoughts on that? I am always open to talking about it. Um, if anyone sees me, you know, you can talk to me about anything. I, I definitely put myself out there and tell, you know, my life story uh, so that other people 
you know, like me or who need help can hear the story mm-hmm. or maybe people who have learned the lesson people need people and are at a better place can know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm always open to talk about it um, whenever, when, wherever, as long as it's an appropriate time and place. So if anyone wants to talk, I'm open to it. Be and careful what you ask for, though. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and I just spread the word. People need people. That's always what I try to do.